0: online at KFUO.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture, our Lutheran confession of the faith. On today's show, we're going to discuss why Concord matters for the baptismal life. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion, confessor, in conversation about this matter today is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor at Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. Pastor Bestel, welcome back to Concord Matters.
1: Thanks so much, Sean. Appreciate you having me here today.
0: Absolutely. Always a great pleasure to have you on. We've had you on several times before, and uh, especially to have you back on today for this episode to talk about how we confessionally approach living the baptized life as Christians. And in setting up this episode, I, I was really intrigued by thoughts that you shared with me for a good way to talk about this, that basically you had told me, you know, we tend to do a good job as Lutherans in talking about the doctrine of baptism. We can do that pretty well when we go through the text of the small catechism, or the book of concord in general or just talking about our doctrine about baptism as lutherans that's certainly a big thing for us as lutherans it was for luther but then we also need to be able to talk about what does that doctrine mean for how we live our baptized life and i think in some places we do that well as well but maybe with not quite the emphasis or as much as we talk about just the doctrine of baptism so i thought that was a really great thought and something that i thought was worth highlighting as I've been doing this kind of thematic approach to the Book of Concord, something important for us to talk about. And so go ahead and set that up a little bit more for us here. What is it that you mean by Concord matters for the baptismal life?
1: Absolutely. The small catechism, as it lays out for us, Christian doctrine as we teach it to our youth, and as we hope and encourage our adult members in the pews to also be engaged in the small catechism. I think it's very easy for people to look at the different parts of the small catechism and not necessarily understand what they have to do with each other. So when we get to the doctrine of baptism, for example, and the baptismal life, we think of the baptismal life as basically the fourth question in the section on baptism. And that fourth question, you know, what does such baptizing with water indicate? Oh, it indicates that the old Adam will be drowned and the new Adam will be raised up. And people say, okay, but how does that happen? What does that look like? Uh, And it's understandable that we run from there into the fifth section on confession and absolution. And we say, well, you know, you confess your sins and then you receive absolution and you go on your way in daily life and you, you do it again. And unfortunately, I think people have sort of compartmentalized that all into something that happens on Sunday. Uh, you know, we haven't made a whole lot of use of private confession absolution, sadly, throughout the church in the last century. And so people think of that type of spiritual warfare as happening on Sunday morning, and that's sort of about it. Uh, and then they might even ask the question, well, okay, so what happens the other six and a half days a week? And what does it mean to live the baptismal life between Sunday afternoon and Saturday night, if you will? And so I found it very helpful to try and teach in the catechism and from the catechism that really the baptismal life can be seen in the first three chief parts of the catechism, the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, that when you see those three working together, you really see what is the daily Christian life, the daily baptismal life, the life of the baptized. And that's perhaps a better picture of the totality of the baptismal life than simply saying, well, you confess your sins and receive forgiveness, or you go to the sacrament of the altar to be strengthened in the faith. Well, that's true, but there's certainly far more to it Monday through Friday, if you will. And that's where I've tried to teach on this issue of the baptismal life. And I think one of the keys that sort of unlocks that understanding is when you read Luther's large catechism, and he gets done with the first three chief parts. And he gets to the fourth part regarding baptism. And he basically says in that fourth part, he says, We've now finished the three chief parts of Christian doctrine. And you think, well, wait a second, we've only done half the catechism. But what he's really getting at there is that if you study the first three chief parts of the catechism, you're going to know what the Christian life looks like. And once you understand that, once you understand that the second half of the chief parts baptism, confession, absolution, the Lord's Supper, Those are the means of grace that bring you into the baptismal life and strengthen and sustain you in the baptismal life. And yet that baptismal life is carried out throughout the week. Once you understand that, that the three first chief parts are really the totality of what the Christian faith is all about, then you can study those three chief parts and go, ah, I see how they start to work together. Luther, he elsewhere even argues that, quote, catechism study is a most effective help against the devil, the world, the flesh, and all evil thoughts. It helps to be occupied with God's word to speak it and meditate on it. That's in the longer preface to the large catechism. And notice some of those emphases there, that catechism study, that actually studying the catechism, especially there's these first three chief parts and how they work together, and to speak it to yourself even, to meditate upon it yourself. helps you understand how you are going to live it out in daily life to defend against the devil, the world, the flesh, all evil thoughts. All of that is really the baptismal life. It's all the life that you've been baptized into as a child of God. Uh, And so with that, you know, you get some of these phrases even that maybe your hearers recognize from other conversations you've had with pastors about the oratio, meditatio, tentatio, that you orate, that you speak the words of God, you pray the words of God, you meditate upon them in, in daily study. And then that helps you wrestle with the tentatio, the, for lack of better terms, the temptations of daily life. And you really struggle through and wrestle through the baptismal life equipped with the shield and armor and sword, if you will, as Ephesians talks about All of those things summarized so neatly and and so well in these first three chief parts and how they weave together in one beautiful theology.
0: Yeah, you've really laid out well there for us, I think, why we as Lutherans are so big on the catechism and why Luther was so big on the catechism. That As we've talked on the show before, he went out and visited the parishes and just saw people who didn't know how to live the Christian life. He says that in his preface to the small catechism. And he says, it necessitates that I write this catechism. And you begin to understand that with what you've laid out there for us, that this really does bring together what we need to know to live our Christian life then. And you bring out the oratio, meditatio, tentatio, you know, those Latin phrases for speaking about God's word, meditating on God's word, and then being engaged to. I like your lack of better terminology, a lot packed into that tentatio, but that temptation and how we fight against that with the armor of God, with his word and so forth. I I don't know that we've covered that enough on this show. And so take that and lead us a little more into how does knowing the catechism lead us in that then?
1: I would start by pointing you to the fact that not only does Luther write about it, but he encourages the studier of the catechism to actually utilize these weapons every day. If you look at the section in the small catechism on the daily prayers, it's quite fascinating to notice that the creed and the Lord's prayer are to be used multiple times a day. They're not just head knowledge, if you will, about the things of God. It's not, you know, Luther isn't teaching us in the catechism to learn these things and then put them on the shelf as if doctrine is just in a textbook to be put on a bookshelf once you've learned it but rather it's to be used, and it's to be used daily, and not only the creed and the Lord's prayer, but notice that when he's talking about morning prayers, he says, once you've said your morning prayers, go about your day singing a hymn about something like maybe the Ten Commandments. So all of these things are to be used in daily life. Now, what does that look like? Uh, What does that mean for the baptized, for the Christian? I would say if you look at the comparison of the three chief parts and how they work together, Certainly the conferman knows, you know, the young child who's being taught the catechism, the adult catechumen who's being talked through adult instruction, if you will, and into the Christian faith. We know the three chief parts, Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer. Okay, well, what do each of those parts mean? I always use the acronym SOS, sort of like save our ship. And yet in the catechism, it stands for something else. In the Ten Commandments, the SOS means that the Ten Commandments shows us our sin. That's why Luther places it first. It shows us our sin. It shows us our need for the Messiah, for the Christ. In short, the Ten Commandments is the law. Then you move to the Creed. The Creed is listed second because its SOS is it shows us our Savior. And so the SOS of the Creed is one of gospel. Certainly, we can speak somewhat more generically in terms of saying, It shows us who our God is, what our God has done for us, what he continues to do for us. All three parts there showing us the everlasting work, if you will, from the beginning of time to the end of time of our triune God, creation, redemption, sanctification. In a more narrow sense, it certainly shows us our Savior very specifically in the second article. And so whether you're looking at the whole creed and the whole work of God, or whether you're speaking specifically regarding the second article of the Creed and the work of the Christ who came to save us from our sins. Either way, it shows us who our God is. It shows us our Savior, to use that acronym. Then you get to the third chief part with the Lord's Prayer, and that really shows us our sanctification. Because that really is the ongoing life of the Christian. Everything else you could argue in a sense is done, right? When you look at the Apostles' Creed, all right, the article on creation, certainly the original creation work is done, though we can get into in some time here in talking about the Lord's Prayer, how that shows that God's first article work continues to care for and provide for and defend us. Certainly the second article of the Creed is done. Christ has died and has completed his work as the Christ. It is finished. He's risen in in victory and ascended on high in glory and will come again to be our judge. The third article of the Creed is really where we live the life of sanctification, which then is taught in the Lord's Prayer. So the Lord's Prayer is really the SOS of the Lord's Prayer is really shows our sanctification. So if you think of all three, and if you're here and in, in listening to this, can sort of think of a piece of paper, and you write across the top of the paper three columns. And the first column is Ten Commandments, and you might, in parentheses, put the law. The second column is the creed, and you might put in parentheses the gospel. And then the third column is the Lord's Prayer, and you might put in parentheses the daily baptismal life or the daily Christian life. And really, when you read the Ten Commandments, and then you put an addition sign between the Ten Commandments and the Creed. The law plus the gospel equals daily Christian life. And that's really what Luther is trying to teach us, I think, and really what we as pastors should be trying to teach God's people, is that God gives us law and gospel not just to rightly divide it in the sermon, but to also rightly carry it out in daily Christian life, to live our lives according to God's holy will, To be able to run back to our baptism and repent of our sins, where we see that we have transgressed his holy law, and to be forgiven by the precious promises of the gospel. So I think that's a good opening layout of how those three sections tie together to understand yes, Ten Commandments, law plus the creed, the gospel, equals the Lord's Prayer, daily Christian life. And to see those three together really shows some harmony between the first three chief parts of the catechism, again, in which Luther says, here now we have finished what is common Christian doctrine.
0: Yeah, once again, makes the point that I made earlier too, why you see it was so essential that we get back to these simple basics. And when you lay it out like that, it really is helpful for us to understand how we live the Christian life. And and I'll just give an example. I'll use my son. He probably gets used on here a little too much, but how maybe this plays out. And so he's two years old. And so, uh, you know, he's You know, they call it the terrible twos for a reason and so forth. And so he's getting a lot of energy. He's feeling out his boundaries and so forth. And at times he'll kind of, you know, start swinging at things and hitting things and knocking things over, especially at the dinner table and things and so forth. So, of course, we use the law with him and, and say, you shouldn't do that and learn to control your emotions and things like that. Maybe give him a timeout. And then, you know, after the timeout, we teach him to say, I'm sorry. And we let him know that we forgive him and so forth. But then we also give him tools that, you know, when he starts wanting to throw his hands around and so forth, we've been trying to teach him, you know, when that gets going and you go ahead and fold your hands and to say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, he's starting to repeat some words and learn some words and so forth. So we want to teach him the good words to say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so that shows him how he should live then going forward so that he doesn't keep breaking the law. I mean, because I think sometimes, and this is maybe what you're highlighting as well, sometimes, especially as Lutherans, I think we can fall into this trap of what I call the law gospel loop. We know that we break the law continually every day. We daily sin much, as Luther says, right? But there is forgiveness, and we trust in Christ, and we come in repentance, and we try to you know, receive that regularly. And at, when we're doing our best, maybe we come to individual confession absolution, as you said, but we tend to just live in that loop, I think. And I like what you've directed us in here is that, no, actually, when we think, especially from the catechism and so forth, that we actually have a way forward to live the sanctified life. To fight against being stuck in that loop, if you will, and to live the way that Christ calls us to live.
1: Absolutely. Uh, It's so important for us not to get stuck into that loop, which sort of leads to or could lead to sort of an antinomianism that says, well, because I know that Jesus is going to forgive me, therefore I'll sin and, and yeah, I'll be sorry, and then he'll forgive me and we'll just do it over again. And we don't want to get stuck into that loop. That's a loop that, in a sense, can very easily lead toward faithlessness. But also, I think part of the struggle that we have is understanding what is the proper purpose of prayer and how does it prevent us from getting stuck in that loop Monday through Saturday, if you will. That the proper purpose of prayer is not just to let our requests be made known to God, which the scriptures say that is, you know, that is what we are to do with prayer, let your requests be made known to God. But it says that the peace of God will keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And that peace does that by conforming our will to God's will. Uh, and that is what Jesus is teaching us in the Lord's Prayer. He's teaching us to depend upon God's holy will for daily life. You know, when the disciples ask the Lord, teach us to pray, he doesn't get into anything having to do with style. He doesn't say, well, make sure that you fold your hands and bow your head and close your eyes. He simply says, say this. And really, it's hard to imagine trying to improve upon the Lord's Prayer, considering that, that God himself taught us to pray it. God in the flesh himself said, say this. Doesn't mean that it's wrong to expound upon that, if you will, to take one petition and use that petition to underline whatever ex a prayer someone might have because of a, of a real pressing and urgent situation. And yet we ought to see in this third chief part such a treasure, not a sacrament, you know, it's not the same as the sacraments. It doesn't replace us receiving baptism and the Lord's Supper and absolution and the hearing of the word. Prayer doesn't replace that. We don't want to get into sort of an enthusiastic understanding of God's grace coming to us as if it comes immediately through prayer. And yet in prayer, Jesus is teaching us to conform our daily life's will by, in a sense, teaching us how to measure what actually is going on in daily life according to his will, see our need for repentance, see our need for forgiveness, and then, in a sense, commend our lives to him to know that if he leads us, we will not fall into temptation. If he defends us, we will be defended from evil rather than trying to lead ourselves or defend ourselves, which then, in a sense, leads all back into all types of sin when we depend upon ourselves to be our own God to be our own redeemer, to be our own bread provider, all of those different things that can lead right back into that circular pattern of sin, repentance, forgiveness, repeat, if you will. Certainly that repetition is going to be there because that is part of the baptismal life. It's not one of never-ending, increasing sanctification like a stock market that always goes up up, 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 but rather it's the turmoil of a stock market that sometimes goes up, sometimes goes down, And hopefully we look back at the end of life and say, yeah, for the most part, it's gone up, but I'm not justified by that increasing sanctification, but rather I'm taught the life of sanctification in joy that I'm already justified by Christ Jesus and to press on, as St. Paul says, toward that goal of the upward call that is ours because of Christ Jesus and because he has baptized us into his name. So I think all of that is such a good understanding of the baptismal life that it really gives us an opportunity to wrestle with the Lord's Prayer, see how Jesus is teaching us to look back through, if you will, the catechism, the, the, you know to look back through the Ten Commandments, see in it our need for salvation, see in it our need for Him as our Savior, and allow our life to be conformed by God's will, to pray, Thy will be done, just as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, if possible, let this cup pass from me nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That's also what he's then, in a sense, teaching us to live out in our daily baptismal life.
0: Yeah, and well set up there for us. And you really begin to see how these three chief parts, the first three chief parts of the small catechism really begin to relate to one another. And I think we'll probably leave it to the second half of the show at this point to talk a little more specifically about those relations. But with a few more minutes before break here, I also want to you briefly reference this earlier. We tend to talk about the six chief parts of the small catechism, and you've brought us to the three, and I think that it's going to be well worth our time, especially in the second half, to talk about the relationship a little more specifically in those three as you've set up here for us. But do you want to say a few words before we take a break and kind of pick that up in the second half? Do you want to say a few words about how this relates to the other three chief parts of the small catechism?
1: Sure. Uh, Luther himself says that the first three chief parts are the chief parts that teach us the totality of what the Christian faith in life really is all about. It's about the law that shows us our sin. It's about the Christ whom God has sent, as as we hear way back in Genesis chapter 3, that he promises a Messiah to save us from our sins. And then it's about living with every hope, confidence, faith, trust, and joy in that Christ and allowing him to really be, if you will, the fulfillment of the first commandment in our daily lives, if you will. The second half of the catechism, Luther himself says, is really all about saying, these are the tools that the Christian needs for that forgiveness of sins, for that strengthening of faith. These are the tools by which he is brought into this reality of law, gospel, and Christian living. Baptism brings him in. Baptism says, you are a child of God. God has claimed you as his own. He has declared you as his own. It's important to keep in mind that neither the cross nor, you might say, baptism make one completely sanctified, right? When people say, well, Jesus died on the cross for me, and so now I'm basically a righteous Christian. By that death on the cross, God has declared you justified. He has declared you his child by applying baptism to you in the name of Christ to you. But the process of sanctification and Christian living is lifelong. It doesn't begin and end at the cross. It doesn't end, if you will, at the moment that your head is dried from those baptismal waters. Same thing with confession and absolution. The confession and absolution is that daily life struggle of realizing one's sin, knowing one's need for repentance. The great comfort of hearing Christ himself say to you, I forgive you your sins, whether in a corporate setting or sometimes the burdened conscience really just needs to hear it all by himself, which is the great joy of private absolution. The great benefit, of course, of private confession is that the pastor can help the individual wrestle with sin and temptation in a way that can't be done in a corporate setting. And so I'd certainly encourage your hearers to try and make use of private confession if they need it because of that great pastoral care benefit. And then private absolution, that wonderful joy of hearing that forgiveness of sins declared just over you, and you can't at that point miss it. You can't pretend or you can't worry yourself into thinking or let the devil worry you into thinking that somehow Christ overlooked you in the crowd. You hear it for yourself. This is said directly to you. And so, yes, by all means, the forgiveness of sins is yours in private absolution. And then, of course, the sacrament of the altar, uh, again, conveying the forgiveness of sins. What a gracious God we have that he lavishes forgiveness upon us. He's not sparing with it. He doesn't say, well, I'll just give you the, the minimum needed but rather he lavishes it upon us and showers us with forgiveness in an abundance of it. Uh, I always tell my confirmands, you know, what kid on Christmas morning, uh, of course, after coming home from the divine service on Christmas morning, goes to the Christmas tree and says, you know, I got four or five presents here, but I really only need or want one. No kid says that. And it's the same way with all of the gifts of God and the, the different means of grace by which forgiveness is brought, baptism, absolution, the Lord's Supper, the hearing of the word. And so the Lord's Supper, again, bestows forgiveness upon us and then strengthens and sustains us for that daily life that we are now going to live out between Sunday afternoon and Saturday night, wrestling as the three chief parts have, have taught us to. So it's a beautiful theology, as Luther one time referred to it, I believe, if I'm quoting him correctly, as you know the golden ring uh, of theology, that just everything works in complete unity and complete symmetry And therefore, it's a joy to study those first three chief parts that we might know, how they are benefited by the second three chief parts, and that together then we have that great unified reality of what it means to be a baptized child of God.
0: Absolutely. And then you also referenced earlier the daily prayers, and I might also throw in the table of duties there as well. Well, Not necessarily the chief parts are a key component that Luther includes in the small catechism for us as well. How do those play into what you've laid out here for us? Yeah, that's
1: right. Uh, Some people forget that when Luther set out the catechism, he didn't just set out the six chief parts, but the six chief parts were the chief parts in section one. And then you got section two and section three and even section four, you know, section two and three, the daily prayers and the table of duties. Daily prayers teaching you what it means to live a life of prayer. And again, it, it should be noted, as we'll pick up in the second half, that Luther there points right to the Lord's Prayer, right? Every time, morning, evening, and every time you eat a meal. And he said, include the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed in the morning, includes the Ten Commandments that you might live your life by these realities the table of duties is that reminder that that christian life is lived out not only with faith in god but also with fervent love for one another as we conclude the divine service every week with one of those post communion prayers as one of the possibilities that the christian faith is not just a relationship between me and god but it's also between me and my fellow brothers and sisters in christ in the church as the apostle says in his epistle one cannot say i love god while hating his brother it just makes him a liar If we love God, then we also love our neighbor because we look at our fellow Christian and we see Christ because our fellow Christian is baptized as well. So you've got the uh, daily prayers, the table of duties, and then you've also got that section on Christian questions and answers that uh, may or may not, if I remember correctly, have been originally part of the small catechism. And yet it's a wonderful thing to, again, especially like a Saturday night, I encourage my congregation on a Saturday night, make use of this section of the catechism, and prepare yourself for the wonderful benefit of coming to the divine service and receiving the gifts of God to again forgive you and strengthen you for the week ahead.
0: Absolutely. So that's our roadmap. You've laid it out for us really well, and in the second half of the show, we're going to take a break here now, but in the second half of the show, we're going to pick up and kind of really hone in on those first three chief parts and see some relationships between those three in terms of specifics to see what you've been talking about and leading us here in how we view the baptized life and how we confess that, how we approach that confessionally. Great conversation with us. Please join us right after this. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUL. Cross Defense is the show where we talk about curious topics to excite the imagination, equip the mind, and comfort the soul with God's Word. Join me, Pastor Tyrell Bramwell, every Monday at 2 p.m. Central on KFUO Radio, or anytime on KFUO.org, or even your favorite podcast app. My friends, our foe is a fierce enemy. Our only defense is Christ on the cross. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with Pastor Mark Bestel for why Concord Matters for the baptismal life. And I really like what you laid out there for us, Pastor Bestel, in the first half of the show. You looked at the whole small catechism, all the six chief parts, and then even the uh, daily prayers and table of duties and Christian questions and their answers. But then you really honed us in on those three really important things that Luther directs us to that are essential for our Christian faith and life, the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to dig into the specifics of that a little bit more and see how these relate together. And I really like how you set that up for us that they really do relate together. And that is the idea behind them. Because I think a lot of times, especially as we have maybe traditionally taught it even in catechesis instruction in our congregations, that sometimes we can just see them as kind of standalone. Yeah, you need to know the Ten Commandments. Yeah, you need to be able to recite the Creed. Yeah, we pray the Lord's Prayer. But that they're place there in the small catechism, because they actually relate together. They're not just kind of standalone and stacked together, if you will, but they actually do relate together. And so go ahead and lay that out for us. What does that look like in terms of the specifics of how they relate together?
1: Sure. So in the first half, if you recall, I encourage you here, imagine, or even if they're taking notes at home, imagine the three columns at the top of a paper, the Ten Commandments Law, plus the Gospel, the Creed equals the Lord's Prayer and daily Christian life is taught in the Lord's Prayer. And that's really, I think, the same format that we want to use here in saying, all right, now that we've got those column headings, now let's fill out the paper. And to do that, I think it's important to start with understanding the relationship between the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. I'll include the Creed in a few minutes, but I start with the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer for a couple reasons. First, because those two are directly words from God Most High to his people. Ten Commandments given in Exodus 20 and, and again in Deuteronomy 5, the Lord's Prayer given by Christ in Matthew 6 and in Luke 11. The Creed certainly conveys divine truth, uses scriptural divine phrases, but you're not going to find anywhere in the Scripture itself that includes from beginning to end the Apostles' Creed. So let's just take the first two, or excuse me, the first and the third, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer, see how these two weave together as sort of a heavenly pair and how yet the tension between the two, if you will, the conflict that arises between the two, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second, how that all is calmed and comforted and answered by the divine truth confessed in the Apostles' Creed. The second reason that I like to go this way is because I don't know who gets credit for it. It's probably an off-used phrase, this small little phrase, doctrine is life. and I think maybe it was one of the Preusses who got credit for that. can't recall. That's usually meant to mean something to the effect of pure doctrine means eternal life. Pure doctrine gives purpose to daily life, if you will, something like that. I would expound upon that just a little bit, and I like to tell my confirmands, doctrine is pure. Life is messy. And that's really what we're seeing in terms of why I talk about tension and conflict between the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments at the outset is that the Ten Commandments, being God's holy will, being God's holy law, good and holy, right doctrine, and yet, as we said early in the show, it shows us our sin. Uh, On the other hand, Jesus teaches us to pray according to God's will, conforming our will to his will. And so he basically teaches us to pray by refocusing us on right doctrine. And so doctrine is life. Life is messy. Doctrine is pure. When the two clash, if you will, when the two meet each other, it's going to be doctrine that leads us safely in life. So doctrine is life. Okay, so if you're here, can sort of think of where we're going here. We're going to start with the relationship between Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer, and then we'll work in the creed. So when we take our piece of paper, our mental piece of paper, and we start to lay these two out, and we start to see how they fit one with another. If you think of the Ten Commandments on the left side of the page, and you've got all right, first commandment, you shall have no other gods. And that is seen or taught correctly in the Lord's Prayer, the doctrine of the Lord's Prayer, as Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. The Heavenly Father is the one true God, As, of course, is Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, and the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so, as we know from the Scriptures, Jesus says, No one comes into the Father but by me. As we also know from the Scriptures, no one can call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So, to pray, Our Father who art in heaven is really a very Trinitarian beginning, even if the other two persons of the Trinity are not mentioned by name. Nevertheless, we are praying to the Father because of Jesus by the faith given us through the Holy Spirit. And so that first line is the proper doctrine for those of us who have to look at the first commandment and say, well, this is God's holy law. His holy will is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one triune God, is my God, and there be no other. The second line does very much the same thing in terms of saying, all right, the second line of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. Well, that is the doctrine that teaches us correctly to consider the daily life we have lived out based on or in response to or in examination under the spotlight of the second commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Certainly that is a, you know, as we teach it to our confirmands, there's a lot in there that is baptismal, right? All of a sudden we realize this is the baptismal life. We have been marked with the cross on our forehead and in our heart. We have been given the name of our triune God, be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we are to live in that reality. That's exactly what Luther says in the small catechism when he talks about what it means to hallow God's name. God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its truth and purity, and we as the children of God also lead holy lives according to it. But anyone who teaches or lives contrary to God's word profanes the name of God among us. So when we pray, hallowed be thy name, As Luther says in the Catechism, we're not praying that we would somehow improve and make God's name more holy in and of itself. You just can't improve upon that. Rather, we are praying that his name be kept holy among us also, which is an appeal back to the Second Commandment. So you can start to see now in these first two lines where the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments are mirror images of each other. And yet in them, Jesus is teaching us to conform our will to God's will which then highlights a little bit of tension, if you will, between how we have lived our daily lives and what we are now praying in the Lord's Prayer. That carries on in the third line of the Lord's Prayer, what's, you know, in the catechism referred to as the second petition. You've got the phrase, thy kingdom come. Well, what are we praying for there? We're not praying necessarily just for the end of days, uh, but rather we are praying a very present tense reality, If your hearers recall, when Jesus sent out the disciples into the towns and villages, he said, if you go to someone's house and they welcome you in, then stay there. Peace be upon this house. But if they do not recognize you, if they reject the gospel that you bring, then shake the dust off your feet and say, nevertheless, the kingdom of heaven has come to this place. It's a present tense reality. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, It is very synonymous with sort of a mirror image of the third commandment. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, because what is the third commandment all about? What is the Sabbath all about? The day of Christ, the day of Christ's resurrection, our new Sabbath rest in Christ Jesus. It's all about God's kingdom coming to us in the divine service. Here is his word. Here is his sacrament. Here are the very means of grace by which we have our divine rest in Christ Jesus. And so that's a third commandment reality to also then pray, thy kingdom come. Again, Luther sort of hints at this, doesn't outright say it, but he hints at this in the words of the uh, second petition when he says, God's kingdom comes when our heavenly Father gives us his Holy Spirit. Well, how does he give us our Holy Spirit except through the word and the sacraments? Those are the means of grace by which the Holy Spirit comes and fills our hearts and strengthens us in the faith. The fourth line of the Lord's Prayer, also mirrors the Ten Commandments. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, when we pray this, and I think it's probably just because in corporate setting, we sort of listen while we're praying, and we try to keep the cadence with our fellow Christians. And I think it's because of that, that we all stop with the phrase, thy will be done, and we pause there to make sure everyone's on the same cadence, and then we go on. Sadly, though, when we do that, I think we sort of misunderstand what comes next, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Either pray it all together, or if you're going to take a break, take a break after the word earth. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think that would be a much more helpful way for English speaking people in their cadence to understand this petition that we are praying that God's will be done on earth. And how is God's will done on earth? Well, it's done, Luther says in the Catechism, when he breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature. And he says, those things which do not want us to hallow God's name or let his kingdom come. All right, so if that's the case, where do we see that play out in daily life? Oh, we see it play out in daily life when the Father's fourth commandment, the Fathers that he places in our daily lives defend us from these things by making sure that our lives are lived out according to God's will. Our fathers in the household, they protect us from ourselves. The fathers in government are supposed to protect us from the world. The fathers in the faith, the pastors of the church, are supposed to protect us from the devil and all spiritual warfare and teach us rightly. And so really that commandment, honor your father and mother, is really a wonderful complement to and really a mirror image of that petition in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth. God's will is done when he places those in positions of authority over us, and they keep us in God's will. The government does not have a right to rule apart from God's will. He is God's agent, God's servant, Romans 13 says, and so the government cannot rule apart from God's will. The father of the household has no right in God's eyes, but rather must give an account to God for the upbringing of his children according to God's will. And the pastor of the church has every accountability to Christ so that the scriptures even say, obey your leaders because they must give an account for your soul. So that fourth commandment and that fourth line of the Lord's Prayer, I tend to think that's one in which people might not see the connection right away and which maybe we as pastors have to really do a thorough job of showing them that this is really a prayer in many ways that reminds us of the importance of vocation, the importance of God-given authority doing its job, and if it does its job well, then we have every reason to honor it. We have every reason to honor it as that which comes from God and which keeps us grounded in the holy will of God. And thus the fourth commandment tied in with that fourth line of the Lord's prayer. Now, if your people are following this carefully, they realize, all right, we're down to, we've still got six commandments to go, and yet we've got one line here of "Give us this day, our daily bread." How does that work? Well, that one line, "Give us this day, our daily bread." really covers the rest of the commandments. When you think of the rest of the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's house or anything that belongs to your neighbor, ninth and 10th commandments combined there. Really, when you think about those commandments, why do we do any of that? Sometimes I'll summarize those commandments, you shall not take your neighbor's life, wife, things, or reputation, or anything that belongs to your neighbor why do we do that? It's because we don't believe that God has given us our daily bread. Because we say, you know, my neighbor's life is better than mine, and I'm jealous of that, and therefore I'll take matters into my own hands because God didn't give me a life like my neighbor's, and so I will harm my neighbor's body. I will even bring him to the point of death, just as Cain killed Abel. We say, you know, I don't believe that God has given me the wife or the husband that I'm supposed to have, Maybe I'm not married yet and I want to take advantage of the benefits of the marriage bed. Maybe I'm married and yet I'm not content in my marriage because I've forgotten that this spouse that God has given me is the spouse that God wants me to have. Maybe I'm after marriage and I am frustrated that my spouse having died early in life or sadly because of the sometimes the irreparable harm of sin, maybe I'm the victim of divorce or maybe even God forbid, earlier in my life, I was the one who caused the divorce. And yet in forgiveness, I now grow frustrated and weary that I do not have what my neighbor has. And so therefore, not having the daily bread in terms of marriage that I think I'm supposed to have, I'm going to commit adultery. Or maybe it's things and I just don't have the the material possessions that my neighbor has. And so I'm going to do everything I can to take from my neighbor. Or maybe it's their reputation. And we see, boy, we see that on TV every night, don't we? Where If you're a public figure in society, apparently reputation is just fair play just to ruin it at every chance we get. And this is how we live in our world, or how the world lives, I should say, and how Christians are told, no, don't live of the world in this way. And so when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we ought to keep in mind that if we are content with the daily bread that God has given us, life, wife, things, reputation, house and home, if we are content with that, then we have no need to depend upon ourselves to take matters into our own hands for the rest of the Ten Commandments and to break those commandments, thinking that somehow God will not be faithful to us. So really, the rest of the Ten Commandments are summarized in that one line. And now Jesus has taught us at the beginning of this prayer to reflect our entire lives according to the Ten Commandments and according to God's holy will. Because remember, the law is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. God's law is holy It is good, it is pure, it is righteous, and we ought desire to live by it. And therefore, at the beginning of the prayer, the first half of the prayer, he teaches us to live by it, teaches us to examine ourselves according to it. And then the next line comes in, forgive us our trespasses, and immediately we see our need for forgiveness. We are called to repentance. We rejoice in forgiveness. And as we rejoice in forgiveness, then we are right to share that joy with others. Because as we've said, our relationship is not just with God, but it's with our neighbor. And therefore, with fervent joy and faith in God for our forgiveness, uh, we have fervent love toward our fellow Christian and desire to share forgiveness with him. And so that line of the Lord's Prayer points that out. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so as we talk about faith in God and love toward our neighbor, we're now squarely into the last section of the prayer, which teaches us that if Christ be my leader, as the uh, hymn says, then he will lead us not into temptation. He'll lead us in a way that we should go. And so here now we're talking about sanctification. We're talking about wrestling in daily life. Uh, He will deliver us from evil, both in daily life and at the end of daily life, sort of in anticipation of the end of all of our earthly struggles. And then we can also petition again uh, this doxology at the end, this doxology, whether it was original to the Lord's Prayer or not in the Scriptures. Some people say it was original. Other people say it wasn't. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Sort of a final confession of our daily life's conformity to God. So you see this mirror image between the Lord's Prayer, especially the top half, and the Ten Commandments. Now in the bottom half though, you see that we sort of ran out of commandments. This is where we now realize that all of the answers between the tension and the conflict, all of them are resolved in the Apostles' Creed. When you think of your paper, your imaginary paper there, and you've got the Ten Commandments on the left, and way in the right hand column, you've got the Lord's Prayer, and you've got arrows pointing back and forth between each line, and you say, Yes, these sort of run into each other, but they're in tension and conflict because of our sin. Then you have that great middle line, that sort of pinnacle of the Lord's prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. There's the cross. There's the work of Christ. And as that central article of the creed opens up to us the rest of the creed, right? To know the Father and the Holy Spirit, you must know Jesus first. Whenever I teach the uh, creed, actually, in my confirmation classes, I always start with the second article because Jesus said, no one comes into the Father but by me. I cannot know that God is a Father until I know that he has a Son. But once I know that he has a Son and a precious Son who died on the cross for my sins, then I can look with a whole different understanding and lens and love of who the Father is and who the Holy Spirit is that the Father and the Son has sent. And so now, all of a sudden, we see where the creed comes into play here. And we realize that, you know, when I'm Praying the first part of this Lord's Prayer, these requests are in many ways first article requests. The first article being that God has made me and all creatures, that he has given me my body and soul, my eyes, ears, my reason, my senses, all my members, he still takes care of them. That he also gives me clothing and shoes, house, home, wife, children, land, animals, all that I need for this body and life, and that he guards and protects me. The first part of the prayer and it's echoing reality in the Ten Commandments, really are calmed by knowing, because of the mercy of God and the gracious suffering and death of Christ Jesus, the tension between the two is calmed by knowing that the God who created me is a God who loves me. And so I can think of that first article of the Creed and say, yes, everything here, everything I'm asking for in this prayer, I have a God who's going to provide it. In fact, even those lines in the prayer that sound more spiritual, if you will. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Talking about the second commandment and third commandment, we say, well, that, that's a little bit more to do with the divine service than it is to do with daily life. And we think of God creating us, we're thinking of daily life. But think of how the divine service appeals to the first article of the creed, to the first commandment, and how they work together. But when we begin the liturgy this way, our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. And if folks don't ever think on that, what a wonderful passage, especially here in this pandemic, to think of this great reality that the God who made me is the God who also provided for my redemption and now for my sanctification, that my help comes in nothing else. Certainly all of these subservient tools, if you will, that God uses, vaccines and doctors and masks and all these things that people are clamoring to nowadays, but all of these things come from God. And so our help is in the name of the Lord. Notice the name, second commandment, who made heaven and earth. And there's a reminder that even the divine service, we are appealing to our creator and we're appealing to his goodness. So the top of the Lord's prayer and the commandments are really a first article creed reality. The middle of the Lord's prayer, forgive us our trespasses. I can only pray that because of the second article of the creed. And then the end of the Lord's prayer beginning with the words, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. That's all a third article creed reality. That's what's going on right now. That's what it means that the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life is keeping the church, is guarding the church, is sanctifying the church, is forgiving us our trespasses, is preparing us for the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So, you know, in 20 minutes to try to throw all of this out there, It's a lot to take in, but if folks can remember those three columns, uh, they're really going to, I think, better appreciate the symmetry between these three chief parts and the unity of doctrine that confesses to us that we have a God who loves us. We have a God who has created us, redeemed us, sanctifies us, that we may live our daily baptismal lives in that, and that we can live praying. That since we have such a good and gracious God, we pray that he would conform our will to his will, that we might live these days of baptismal daily life in peace and quiet.
0: You said there, it's a lot to take in, but it's exactly what we should be teaching. And I would argue is really great catechesis that you provided there for us. And is one of the reasons why I really just wanted to remain quiet and let you lead us through that catechism lesson so that we would begin to see how these things are all related together really quite well. And even once again, is why we've taken this approach of the thematic kind of topic approach to this show for a little bit here, is so that we would begin to see how this doctrine doesn't just stand alone, but does relate together. And I loved how you brought it to a conclusion there, especially tying us into the divine service and how we live that out and we begin to see why once again as Lutherans and as Luther himself pushed that the regular meditation upon the small catechism is just beautiful for how we view our, as we're talking about here today, our baptismal life, our Christian life. And we see that play out in what we do in worship together and how we live our life in the world together. And, and it really draws it all together really quite beautifully. And you brought in the, the line that we have there. Our help is in the name of the Lord. And I was actually even going a little earlier in my mind as you were teaching that. I was thinking about just invoking the name of God Mm -hmm. when we say two or three gathered in his name, right? And we, the word to invoke really to call down, right? You know, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that he's coming and dwelling amongst his people there. And there's so much going on there. Any other kind of highlights that you want to draw out here? Again, excellent catechesis and seeing this all relate together, but any other connections that you want to kind of make to either our baptismal life as we're focused on here today, but also as that plays out even as we worship together?
1: Well, I think I'd probably want to encourage your hearers to understand that as we worship together, certainly you're absolutely right that there's this appeal to the baptismal life that we have all things in common because we all are the dear baptized beloved of God, and therefore we rejoice in the great gifts that are ours as he gathers us at the pulpit and the altar to benefit on all the richness or all the riches of heaven. And then as we go out into our daily lives, we live what is really a very simple Christian faith. Then I think that's what I'd want to try and impress upon the hearers. You know, I think sometimes folks get frustrated because they're 10,000 different denominations of supposedly what it means to be a Christian and things of that nature. And it's really quite simple. And I think that's exactly what Luther points out in these first three chief articles, that in these three chief articles, when we see these together, which can be explained in 25 minutes or so, uh, we see the totality of the Christian faith. And it's really quite simple, that there's not a lot of red tape to it, We're not jumping through hoops. We don't have this long list of things that a person has to do, if you will, to prove himself worthy. It's really very simple. It's a life that is focused on what our loving God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And it's why the words of St. Paul are so beautiful, even in their simplicity, because our doctrine is this simple beauty. When St. Paul says that everything else is loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus our Lord, And that's really what the catechism is all about, is that everything else is just no harder than this. It's no more complicated than this. Knowing Christ Jesus, knowing how these three chief parts inform what the totality of the Christian faith is, so that as Luther's hymn says, we can live in days of peace and unity. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Uh, So yeah, there's certainly a joy in daily life that we then share together in our worship with one another. That as we come together, we come as those who have lived out this daily life and now are being refreshed in the divine service, rejoicing in the unity that is ours and the forgiveness of sins, the mutual benefit, the shared inheritance that is ours, so that we might live with faith in God and fervent love toward one another.
0: That is well confessed. Absolutely. As you said there, that's what the Catechism is all about. And it leads us in viewing our baptismal life I Thank you, Pastor Mark Bestel, for leading us in seeing how this all relates together and knowing our catechisms, especially these very important first three chief parts and how they relate together really do lead us in our Christian life of faith, our baptismal life. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure, as always, having you join us for Concord Matters today and discussing with us why Concord Matters for how we live the baptized life. My pleasure. Thank you, Sean. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.